Chapter Twenty Five of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter Twenty Five The Rings. Where are the rings? Had Mr. Grice been present, I would have instantly triumphed over my disappointment, bottled up my chagrin, and been the inscrutable Amelia Butterworth, before he could say, Something has gone wrong with this woman. But Mr. Grice was not present, and though I did not betray the half I felt, I yet showed enough emotion for Miss Althorpe to remark, You seemed surprised by what I have told you. Has anyone said that these two women were alike? Having to speak, I became myself again in a trice and nodded vigorously. Someone was so foolish, I remarked. Miss Althorpe looked thoughtful. While she was interested, she was not so interested as to take the subject in fully. Her own concerns made her abstracted, and I was very glad of it. Louise Van Burnham had a sharp chin and a very cold blue eye, yet her face was a fascinating one to some. Well, it was a dreadful tragedy, I observed, and tried to turn the subject aside, which fortunately I was able to do after a short effort. Then I picked the basket up, and perceiving the sick woman's lips faintly moving, I went over to her and found her murmuring to herself. As Miss Elthorpe had risen when I did, I did not dare to listen to these murmurs, but when my charming hostess had bidden me good night, with many injunctions not to tire myself, and to be sure and remember that a decanter and a plate of biscuits stood on a table outside, I hastened back to the bedside, and leaning over my patient, endeavored to catch the words as they fell from her lips. As they were simple, and but the echo of those running at that very moment through my own brain, I had no difficulty in distinguishing them. Van Burnham, she was saying, Van Burnham, varied by a short, Howard, and once by a doubtful Franklin? Ah, thought I with a sudden reaction, she is the woman I seek, if she is not Louise Van Burnham. And, unheeding the start she gave, I pulled off the blanket I had spread over her, and willy-nilly drew off her left shoe and stocking. Her bare ankle showed no scar, and covering it quickly up, I took up her shoe. Immediately the trepidation she had shown at the approach of a stranger's hand towards that article of clothing was explained. In the lining, around the top, were sewn bills of no ordinary amount, and as the other shoe was probably used as a like depository, she naturally felt concern at any approach which might lead to a discovery of her little fortune. Amazed at a mystery possessing so many points of interest, I tucked the shoe in under the bedclothes and sat down to review the situation. The mistake I had made was in concluding that because the fugitive whose traces I had followed had worn the clothes of Louise Van Burnham, she must necessarily be that unfortunate lady. Now I saw that the murdered woman was Howard's wife after all, and this patient of mine her probable rival but this necessitated an entire change in my whole line of reasoning. If the rival and not the wife lay before me, then which of the two accompanied him to the scene of tragedy? He had said it was his wife, 
I had proven to myself that it was the rival. Was he right, or was I right, or were neither of us right? Not being able to decide, I fixed my mind upon another query. When did the two women exchange clothes? Or rather, when did this woman procure the silk habiliments and elaborate adornments of her more opulent rival? Was it before either of them entered Mr. Van Burnham's house? Or was it after their encounter there? Running over in my mind certain little facts of which I had hitherto attempted no explanation, I grouped them together and sought amongst them for inspiration. These are the facts. 1. One of the garments found on the murdered woman had been torn down the back. As it was a new one, it had evidently been subjected to some quick strain not explainable by any appearance of struggle. 2. The shoes and stockings found on the victim were the only articles she wore which could not be traced back to Altman's. In the redressing of the so-called Mrs. James Pope, these articles had not been changed. Could not that fact be explained by the presence of a considerable sum of money in her shoes? 3. The going out bareheaded of a fugitive, anxious to avoid observation, leaving hat and gloves behind her in a dining-room closet. I had endeavored to explain this last anomalous action by her fear of being traced by so conspicuous an article as this hat but it was not a satisfactory explanation to me then, and much less so now. Four, and last, and most vital of all, the words which I had heard fall from this half-conscious girl. Oh, how can I touch her? She is dead, and I have never touched a dead body. Could inspiration fail me before such a list? Was it not evident that the change had been made after death and by this seemingly sensitive girl's own hands? It was a horrible thought, and led to others more horrible, for the very commission of such a revolting act argued a desire for concealment only to be explained by great guilt. She had been the offender and the wife the victim, and Howard, well, his actions continued to be a mystery, but I would not admit his guilt even now. On the contrary, I saw his innocence in a still stronger light. For if he had openly, or even covertly, connived at his wife's death, would he have so immediately forsaken the accomplice of his guilt? To say nothing of leaving to her the dreadful task of concealing the crime? No, I would rather think that the tragedy took place after his departure, and that his action in denying his wife's identity, as long as it was possible to do so, was to be explained by the fact of his ignorance in regard to his wife's presence in the house, where he had supposed himself to have simply left her rival. As the exchange made in the clothing worn by the two women could only have taken place later, and as he naturally judged the victim by her clothing, perhaps he was really deceived himself as to her identity. It was certainly not an improbable supposition and accounted for much that was otherwise inexplicable in Mr. Van Burnham's conduct. But the rings, why could I not find the rings? If my present reasoning were correct, this woman should have those evidences of guilt about her. But had I not searched for them in every available place without success? 
Annoyed at my failure to fix this one irrefutable proof of guilt upon her, I took up the knitting work I saw in Miss Oliver's basket and began to ply the needles by way of relief to my thoughts. But I had no sooner got well under way than some movement on the part of my patient drew my attention again to the bed, and I was startled by beholding her sitting up again, but this time with a look of fear rather than suffering on her features. Don't, she gasped, pointing with an unsteady hand at the work in my hands. The click, click of the needles is more than I can stand. Put them down, pray, put them down. Her agitation was so great and her nervousness so apparent that I complied at once. However much I might be affected by her guilt, I was not willing to do the slightest thing to worry her nerves even at the expense of my own. As the needles fell from my hand, she sank back, and a quick, short sigh escaped her lips. Then she was again quiet, and I allowed my thoughts to return to the old theme. The rings, the rings. Where were the rings, and was it impossible for me to find them? End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 A Tilt with Mr. Grice at seven o'clock the next morning my patient was resting so quietly that I considered it safe to leave her for a short time. So I informed Miss Althorpe that I was obliged to go downtown on an important errand, and requested Crescenza to watch over the sick girl in my absence. As she agreed to this I left the house as soon as breakfast was over, and went immediately in search of Mr. Grice. I wished to make sure that he knew nothing about the rings. It was eleven o'clock before I succeeded in finding him. As I was certain that a direct question would bring no answer, I dissembled my real intention as much as my principles would allow, and accosted him with the eager look of one who has great news to impart. Oh, Mr. Grice, I impetuously cried, just as if I were really the weak woman, he thought me. I have found something, something in connection with the Van Burnham murder. You know I promised to busy myself about it if you arrested Howard Van Burnham. His smile was tantalizing in the extreme. Found something, he repeated, and may I ask if you have been so good as to bring it with you? He was playing with me, this aged and reputable detective. I subdued my anger subdued my indignation even, and smiling much in his own way, answered briefly, I never carry valuables on my person. A half-dozen expensive rings stand for too much money for me to run any undue risk with them. He was caressing his watch-chain as I spoke, and I noticed that he paused in this action for just an infinitesimal length of time as I said the word rings. Then he went on as before, but I knew I had caught his attention. Of what rings do you speak, madam? Of those missing from Mrs. Van Burnham's hands? I took a leaf from his book and allowed myself to indulge in a little banter. Oh, no, I remonstrated. Not those rings, of course. The Queen of Siam's rings. Any rings but those in which we are specially interested. This meeting him on his own ground evidently puzzled him. You are facetious, madam. What am I to gather from such levity? That success has crowned your efforts and that you have found a guiltier party than the one now in custody? 
Possibly, I returned, limiting my advance by his. But it would be going too fast to mention that yet. What I want to know is whether you have found the rings belonging to Mrs. Van Burnham. My triumphant tone, the almost mocking accent I purposely gave to the word you, accomplished its purpose. He never dreamed I was playing with him. He thought I was bursting with pride, and casting me a sharp glance, the first, by the way, I had received from him, he inquired with perceptible interest, Have you? Instantly convinced that the whereabouts of these jewels was as little known to him as to me, I rose and prepared to leave. But seeing that he was not satisfied and that he expected an answer, I assumed a mysterious air and quietly remarked, If you will come to my house tomorrow, I will explain myself. I am not prepared to more than intimate my discoveries today. But he was not the man to let one off so easily. Excuse me, said he, but matters of this kind do not admit of delay. The grand jury sits within the week, and any evidence worth presenting them must be collected at once. I must ask you to be frank with me, Miss Butterworth. And I will be, tomorrow. Today, he insisted, today. Seeing that I should gain nothing by my present course, I reseated myself, bestowing upon him a decidedly ambiguous smile as I did so. You acknowledge, then, said I, that the old maid can tell you something after all. I thought you regarded all my efforts in the light of a jest. What has made you change your mind? Madam, I decline to bandy words. Have you found those rings, or have you not? I have not, said I, but neither have you and as that is what I wanted to make sure of, I will now take my leave without further ceremony. Mr. Grice is not a profane man, but he allowed a word to slip from him, which was not entirely one of blessing. He made amends for it next moment, however, by remarking, Madam, I once said, as you will doubtless remember, that the day would come when I should find myself at your feet. That day has arrived. And now, is there any other little cherished fact known to the police which you would like to have imparted to you? I took his humiliation seriously. You are very good, I rejoined, but I will not trouble you for any facts. Those I am enabled to glean for myself, but what I should like you to tell me is this, whether, if you came upon those rings in the possession of a person, known to have been on the scene of crime at the time of its perpetration, you would not consider them as incontrovertible proof of guilt. Undoubtedly, said he, with a sudden alteration in his manner, which warned me that I must muster up all my strength if I would keep my secret till I was quite ready to part with it. Then, said I, with a resolute movement towards the door, that's the whole of my business for today. Good morning, Mr. Grice. Tomorrow I shall expect you. He made me stop, though my foot had crossed the threshold, not by word or look, but simply by his fatherly manner. Miss Butterworth, he observed, the suspicions which you have entertained from the first have within the last few days assumed a definite form. In what direction do they point? Tell me. Some men, and most women, would have yielded to that imperative, tell me, 
but there was no yielding in Amelia Butterworth. Instead of that, I treated him to a touch of irony. "'Is it possible,' I asked, "'that you think it worth while to consult me? I thought your eyes were too keen to seek assistance from mine. You are as confident as I am that Howard Van Burnham is innocent of the crime for which you have arrested him.' A look that was dangerously insinuating crossed his face at this. He came forward rapidly, and joining me where I stood, said smilingly, "'Let us join forces, Miss Butterworth. You have from the first refused to consider the younger son of Silas Van Burnham as guilty. Your reasons then were slight and hardly worth communicating. Have you any better ones to advance now? It is not too late to mention them if you have.' "'It will not be too late to-morrow,' I retorted. Convinced that I was not to be moved from my position, he gave me one of his low bows. "'I forgot,' said he, "'that it was as a rival and not as a coadjutor that you meddled in this matter.' And he bowed again, this time with a sarcastic air I felt too self-satisfied to resent. "'Tomorrow, then,' said I. "'Tomorrow.' At that I left him. I did not return immediately to Miss Althorpe. I visited Cox Millinery Store, Mrs. Desberger's house, and the offices of the various city railways. But I got no clue to the rings, and finally satisfied that Miss Oliver, as I must now call her, had not lost or disposed of them on her way from Gramercy Park to her present place of refuge, I returned to Miss Althorpe's with even a greater determination than before to search that luxurious home till I found them. But a decided surprise awaited me. As the door opened I caught a glimpse of the butler's face, and noticing its embarrassed expression, I at once asked what had happened. His answer showed a strange mixture of hesitation and bravado. Not much, ma'am, only Miss Althorpe is afraid you may not be pleased. "'Miss Oliver is gone, ma'am. She ran away while Crescenza was out of the room.'" End of chapter 26